0: That's great. We're excited today. I'm excited. Everybody's excited. That's great. Love it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, I have had the experience, I'm sure many of you had this experience too, of being stuck on a highway and rush hour. I once was driving from Norfolk, Virginia to Washington, D.C., which is a four hour drive, and it took me eight hours. We spent three and a half hours just at a standstill in traffic. It was awful. I've had that happen in Wausau too. During rush hour, I've waited five, ten minutes sometimes. (laughs) Really, really brutal. And uh, so all of us have had that moment where we thought, boy, in the midst of this rush hour craziness, I would really like to just do something insane and get out of here. And I actually came across a video of someone who did just that, and I would like to play that now. Okay. I love it. Uh, So first of all, props to that guy who was an incredible backwards driver, right? So it it strikes me that there is something that is really insightful about that moment. I think maybe all of us have had a season in our life where we said, uh, I'm going to try this crazy different thing. I'm going to try something in a new way, in a different way, and just see what happens. And, And sometimes it works, right? Sometimes it gets us where we're trying to get to, uh, and then we just sort of double down on that decision and we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. And, and sometimes we begin to realize that we're almost stuck in that pattern that, you know, pardon the pun, but we can't change gears. We can't turn around. We're just um, continuing down that path. Uh, we have a tendency to kind of double down on those mistakes uh, to embrace our faults. Oh, as, as an aside, um, in my living room, uh, there is a coaster uh, we have one coaster in my living room, and the coaster has a little message on it. It says, I told my wife to embrace her mistakes, and she hugged me. I don't know why my wife thinks that's so great, but that's the only thing in our… Anyway, that's not related to our sermon. That's just Extra. Uh, I think sometimes we get into this pattern, and I think that's where Jacob is in our story. I think Jacob um, did something that worked, right? He, he lied, he tricked, he deceived his brother, and it worked. And so he did it again, and he did it again and again and again, uh, to the point where he didn't know how to stop doing it, to the point where he was kind of stuck in this pattern, and he just couldn't turn his life back around. And when things didn't go his way, his solution was to live into his name, right? He's the heel grabber, he's the taker, and he wants to take more and grab more and lie more and deceive more. We fall into this same trick. Sometimes it's not even about something immoral. Sometimes we just get into a pattern and we can't turn our life around. When we we get into a work situation and we find that we can make things better by working a little bit harder and a little bit longer. And it works. And so we do it again and again and again and again until we wake up and realize that we're working 80-hour work weeks and the rest of our lives are falling apart. We do this with our money, right? where we say, ah, you know what, in the moment I need something, I can't afford it, I'm going to put it on my credit card, I'll get a little bit of debt, and that worked great, and so I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to do it again, and again, and again, until all of a sudden I'm in debt beyond what I imagined, and I don't know how to turn my life around. We do it in relationships, where we say, boy, you know what? I know He says He needs that to be happy, and so I'm going to give Him what He asks for, and I'll just keep giving and giving and giving and hoping that one day He starts to love me if I give Him enough. And in every one of those situations, we find ourselves uh, in this backwards drive down the highway wondering how long we can keep this up, right? How long until we reach a point where we can't keep going on? And what happens when we can't fool ourselves anymore? And to thinking that what we're doing is OK, that what we're doing is working, that it's going to get us where we want to go. That's where Jacob is on this night, on the edge of the river, by himself. He has all that he has grabbed and taken, he has all uh, his brother's birthright and his brother's blessing, and he's got all of the wives and the children and all the wealth he's accrued, even the covenant of God, he's got it all but now it's all at risk. Esau is coming. He's got to go home, and there's nothing that he can do to hold on to all his stuff. He doesn't know what happens when his brother shows up, but he knows that he can't trick him again. He can't double down on the same pattern. Um, The way his life is going is a way of destruction. And in, in fact, I think he even begins to recognize How incredibly self absorbed his life is. There's something interesting in the story. Did you notice that he sends all his wealth and his women and his children across the river and then he stays behind by himself? It reminds me of a story I heard about a Chicago mobster named Lenny Patrick. Lenny Patrick was a a criminal and a villain, um, but ended up becoming a federal witness against the Chicago mob. And so he got state protection. And while he was Um, In productive custody, the mob was trying to intimidate him to not testify, so they bombed the car of his stepdaughter. No one was killed, uh, but they bombed the car of his stepdaughter as a threat. And so, he understandably lived in fear for a good portion of his life thereafter. Uh, And so, every morning, not knowing whether his car was going to be bombed or not, he sent – this is a true story as far as I know it – he sent his wife out to start the car every day for years. Jacob sends his wives ahead of him and his children ahead of him. He says, Hey, you know what? When we meet Esau, I want him to see you first. And then, in this moment, when he has to recognize how broken his life is, at this moment where he has to recognize how self centered and self obsessed his life has been, where he recognizes he's going in the wrong direction, he meets a man in the middle of the night and they wrestle. Now, this part. Um, I totally get, because when anyone visits my house anytime after 8 p.m., I used to assume they're there to wrestle, right? And so that's what we do. It's great, super fun. Um, no, this is, this is a weird moment in the story, right? It's, it's weird for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, we're told that this man that Jacob is wrestling with is God, He says, you've wrestled with God and prevailed. Now, elsewhere in the Scripture, sometimes we're told it's an angel of God. Either way, this is not a human that he's wrestling with. It's an emissary of the divine. And I think we should assume that Jacob is not going to be able to overpower God in a wrestling match. There's no, I held you down and counted to three situation happening here. It's also worth noticing that the only time we hear anything physical about their wrestling match is when the the man, God, touches Jacob's hip and immediately puts out a joint. So, the only time anything physical happens, one guy has complete power over the other. The other thing that's worth mentioning as a detail is that Jacob is 97 years old at this point in the story, and I will be the first to admit that there are some people over 97 years old that I would not mess with. I'm pretty sure Ruth Reneke, who's 102, could take me in a fight, but, but I don't think the intent here is that this is a physical altercation. Jacob's doing a different kind of wrestling. J.I. Packer says it like this, That night, as Jacob stood alone by the river Jabbok, God met him. There were hours of desperate, agonized conflict, spiritual, and as it seemed to Jacob, physical also. Jacob had hold of God. He wanted a blessing, an assurance of divine favor and protection in this crisis, but he could not get what he sought. Instead, he grew ever more conscious of his own state, utterly helpless, and without God, utterly hopeless. He felt the full bitterness of his unscrupulous, cynical ways now coming home to roost. He had hitherto been self-reliant, believing himself to be more than a match for anything that might come, but now he felt his complete inability to handle things, and knew with blinding, blazing certainty that never again would he dare trust himself to look after himself and carve out his own destiny." The nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him and wrought in him the spirit of submission and self-distrust, that he had desired God's blessing so much that he clung to God through all this painful humbling till he came low enough for God to raise him up. I love this idea that the wrestling that Jacob does with God is this spiritual agonizing of what his life is to be about, of what direction his life is going, of how things might be different. I think there's even a recognition that his relationship with God until this point was kind of broken. It was transactional. It was, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. Jacob actually um, sort of sees God, maybe in a way that some of us see God, right? Maybe in this idea that, hey, if I believe in you and then go to church once in a while and then you're going to send me to heaven, then, hey, we got a good deal and I don't have to worry about the rest of all the other stuff. I don't need to be one of those in the church all the time Christians, one of those I memorize the Bible Christians. I'm just going to be, you know, I'm just going to punch my ticket. A little bit like a person who gets married to get a green card, right? We're going to go through the motions, we're going to make the commitment, but the purpose is not the relationship. The purpose is what I can get from it. I think in this moment Jacob realizes that God is not in the habit of being used, and so uh, John Walton says uh, Jacob's name. Uh, which has embodied his character throughout the story. He's the heel grabber. He's the taker. He's the deceiver. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, to he who wrestles with God. And Jacob's worst quality, the quality of just grabbing and taking, becomes his greatest strength when he directs it towards God. It becomes his identity. He's going to be the one who won't let go of Yahweh. What if our life wasn't about managing or balancing or trying harder or being enough? What if our goal wasn't through moral or immoral means to hold on to our possessions and position and pleasure and power and even our people? What if we recognized that all of that was just a backwards-facing life? I think wrestling with God is kind of simple, actually. It's just about turning around. It's about turning from being Jacob to being Israel, from the sunset to the sunrise, from our past to our future, from ourselves to God's selves, from death to life. Not something that we can make happen with our effort, but with our effort, we can hold on to God while He turns us around. We read another story this morning, uh, the story of Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Um, Mary is at a different point in her life than Jacob is. Mary is already forward-facing. Mary has already recognized that Jesus is the center of her life, that He's more than just her rabbi. He is her Messiah. He is her Savior. Mary is trying to hold on to Jesus, but her hands aren't strong enough. I think this is hugely important. Even when we are trying to hold on to God, there will be times when it seems like we're not able to do that, even when we let go of the other stuff in our lives and say, God, You are the most important. You're the one that matters. You're the one I'm going to kind of cling to. There'll be times where it feels like God just keeps slipping through our fingers. Everybody in the Scriptures experiences this from Mary in this moment to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We call it the long, dark night of the soul. It's the experience of feeling distant from God even when we're trying to hold on. But as Mary goes through this separation. As she's looking for Jesus, Jesus comes looking for her. And we get one of the strangest and I think most important lines in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to Mary, don't hold on to me. So, I think this matters on several levels, but let's talk about the most practical one. I can only assume in this moment that when Mary sees and recognizes Jesus she runs to him. She grabs him. She hugs him, and they hug for a really long time. Have you ever had a hug that was just a little bit too long, right? You're like, okay, dude, you need to, we need to go on. Uh, I, I think this is that kind of moment. I think Jesus says, uh, Mary, I love you, but I got other people I, I got to see. I got other things I got to do. You're going to have to, like, let go. Uh, I, I had this experience uh, when I first came to uh, know Christus family and move, and then later moved to the Midwest. I met this uh, experience called the Midwest Goodbye, and the Midwest goodbye takes a long time. Have you, Some of you experienced this as well. Um, I remember at least one time where um, we were saying goodbye to somebody, and I said, hey, great to see you. Thanks. Good to see you. Blah, 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 I got to go. And I left and got in the car, and then I realized that no one else was coming with me and that Krista and her parents were still in there saying goodbye to so-and-so. And I waited for like five minutes. And I went back in. And I said, what are we doing? They said, we're still saying goodbye. I, takes a long time, apparently, in the Midwest. Um this, this is a great thing, um, and I think this is Mary's experience, right? Mary gets, in a beautiful way, she gets a Midwest goodbye with Jesus, right? She gets this incredible moment of closeness with her Savior, but it's not the end of her story, Everything changes with the resurrection of Jesus. Jacob was blessed to be a blessing to the nations, but we have met that blessing in a man from Nazareth who wouldn't stay dead. And so holding on to Jesus doesn't mean literally staying with Him in the garden or on the mountaintop. It doesn't mean that we have to be in church all day or it doesn't mean that we keep our faith to ourselves or even keep Christ for ourselves. Like Jacob, as the sun rises on Easter morning, we are called not just to meet Jesus, but to go back to our lives, changed people. So, Jesus sends Mary out to tell others the good news. He sends Mary out to tell others about the story of Easter, about what Easter means. I I want to share a little bit about what Easter means with a video. The word
1: Easter literally refers to the time of year in the spring when the days become longer than the nights. But for the person who knows Jesus Christ, Easter means a lot more than that. It means that even though Jesus died, salvation didn't. Even though Jesus was buried, hope wasn't. Because Jesus is alive. Easter means there is forgiveness for my failures, grace for my guilt, and mercy for my misery. Easter means that the pain and the silence of living in a Saturday world isn't purposeless and it isn't permanent. Easter means that I can't out-sin the grace of God and I can't outrun the reach of God. It means that Jesus is king. Light overcomes darkness and justice will win and brokenness will be broken. Easter means that the scars on the hands of Jesus are telling a story of victory, not defeat. And the same is true for me. It means that I am not alone, not ashamed, not forgotten and not forsaken. It means that the rain and the storms and the wind and the waves of this world will not have the last word because my future is a resurrected body with the resurrected Jesus on our resurrected earth. Easter means that I can join with a choir of saints and angels singing, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh grave, where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your song? Easter means that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for me. Easter means that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me.
0: Let me tell you one more thing that Easter means. Easter means that When we aren't strong, when we can't hold on to God, God holds on to us. Jesus will not let us go. Jesus says no one can snatch us from His hand. It means that after Easter, our faith is no longer about how good you are at holding on to God, about your morality or your faithfulness or your holiness. It's not about the strength of your arms or the strength of your faith because we're not saved by our effort. Easter means that we simply need to trust and the strength of Christ, and lean on the everlasting arms. Easter means that when my arms lose all their strength, when my hands cannot hold anything because my lungs lack the strength to breathe and my heart lacks the strength to pump, even then my story is not over. Easter means that Jesus will not let me go. Jesus sends out Mary to tell the disciples, and He sends out us to tell the world today what Easter means, that in Christ, God is holding on to us through our inadequacy and through our sin, through our darkness and through our sorrow. Through death itself, Jesus will not let us go turning your life around today isn't about changing gears. It's about changing gods. It's about saying that we will no longer follow a God who requires us to be perfect, but a God who is perfect for us. It's about saying we'll no longer follow a God who wants us to have a life that is perfectly ordered around our strength, but a life that's completely broken and made whole by Christ's strength. It means that we're no longer going to follow a God about ourselves, but a God about selflessness, a God who is embodied in Jesus. Easter means that we're called to hold on to Jesus and be held by Him. And Scripture says that if we do that, then nothing in life or in death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to Him. Amen.